morning, everyone. So glad that you're here with us today on uh, the special Sunday. We take the fifth Sunday of the month to do something a little bit different in our worship and help to kind of stimulate our senses in a different way. I want to thank those who are involved in kind of uh, putting together all the worship accents that we use during the Sunday just to uh, help us focus a little bit more on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we're continuing in our series on courage And uh, if I were to take a survey and ask people what story in the Bible best illustrates courage in the face of conflict, I'd be willing to bet good money that the number one answer would be the story of young David facing off against the giant Goliath. I mean, it is a legendary feat of courage. It's epic. It's, It's big screen. It's 3D. Even people who don't know the Bible very well or don't know the Bible at all, they still know the story of David and Goliath. It's kind of the universal underdog uh, who miraculously finds victory in the face of of overwhelming odds. David and Goliath, it's the all-time favorite children's story. It's acted out in vacation Bible school dramas with little slings and bath, uh, bath towel robes. Though parts of the story are necessarily sanitized for younger audiences. I mean, they usually don't act out the part where David cuts off Goliath's head and carries the bloody mess back to King Saul as a sign of his victory. So this morning, I want us to look at the story of David and Goliath as we think about our message series about courage. And what I want to do is two things about David. First, I want us to look at one way in which David is a perfect and very necessary example of how we should approach conflict with courage in our lives today. And secondly, I want to look at one way in which David is a terrible example, a model of how we should deal with our conflicts. So let's take a look at what's going on. The story's in 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'm going to kind of tell the story, but if you'd like to follow along in your Bible... In the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 17, I encourage you to read the whole passage for yourself because it is a tremendous story. The year is about 1035 B.C. The Israelites under King Saul are locked into a stalemate in a battle against the Philistines. For 300 years, there had been bad blood between the Israelites and the Philistines. When Joshua led the Israelites into Canaan, he conquered everything except for three cities, Gath, Gaza, and Ashdod. And those were the hometowns for the clans of the Philistines. The Philistines uh, held the flatter country down by the Mediterranean Sea. The Israelites were up in the hill country. And the two armies are squared off on either side of a place called the Valley of Elah. And the Philistines have a giant of a champion named Goliath, who stood, stood like a Godzilla, and he had nothing but hatred for the people of Israel. And so for every day for 40 days, Goliath would step out into the open ground and issue a challenge. Give me a man and let us fight, he says in verse 10. On one level, it was a challenge to have a a battle of champions. Send Send out your best fighter. Let's settle this. Mano a mano conmigo. You know, one on one. Let's let's get it done. Hand to hand combat to the death. Winner take all. It wasn't the rumble in the jungle, but it was the melee in the mountains. Goliath challenged their courage, their bravery, their their masculinity. And on a deeper level, it was a challenge to prove whose God was stronger. Was it Dagon, the fish god of the Philistines, or or this Yahweh that they'd been hearing a lot about? 
And so for 40 days he has been taunting the Israelites and insulting their God, and they are too afraid to do anything about it. Verse 11, when they heard it was Goliath who gave the challenge, they were terrified and lost all hope. Goliath was, was really getting into their heads. They were starting to believe that this problem was bigger than their God. Have you ever had a problem like that? Ever have a problem that did that to you? It's the first thing you think about in the morning and the last thing you think about at night. You might have a Goliath like that, something that's taunting you, something that brings up all your fears about unemployment or depression or, or family strife or memories of, of sexual abuse or something having to do with your school or grades or your past, your future, whatever it might be. How long has that Goliath taunted you? How long have you believed that that problem is bigger than God? And here comes David. He's the youngest in his family. He's the runt of the litter. His father had sent him to take loaves of bread and bricks of cheese to his older brothers who served in King Saul's army. He's barely a teenager. He had previously been consigned to the most menial job of the household, which was taking care of the sheep. And now he's promoted to grocery store delivery boy. And whether it's his youthful ignorance or naive exuberance or his rock-solid faith in God, he's flabbergasted when he sees what's happening at the front lines. Nothing. Nothing's happening. No one is doing anything. Goliath is being the bully. He's insulting their God. And the Israelite army is sitting around playing words with friends. King Saul has even offered a reward for anyone who's willing to face Goliath in battle. His daughter's hand in marriage, no more taxes for the entire family ever. I mean, it's literally a king's ransom, but there are no takers. They're all staring at the ground, shuffling their sandals in the dirt. And so David speaks up. He starts asking questions. And his older brothers, the same guys who are in total fear of Goliath, they show nothing but contempt to this little pipsqueak. Like usual in his family, He's treated with scorn. And so in verse 29, David says in frustration, Now what have I done? Can I even speak? His questions get reported to King Saul. And Saul is so desperate, he'll try anything, except, of course, him going out and facing Goliath himself. So he has an audience with young David, and David has never fought a giant before. He's never seen a giant before. He's never fought a human being before. But David is all in. I mean, he is ready to rock and roll. He tells King Saul that in the hills of Bethlehem, he had experienced God's power firsthand and protection while guarding his sheep against lion and bear. He had this God-infused confidence. And he was ready to face any conflict because, because he knew God was going to be at his side. Saul tries to get him prepared with kind of the standard template for battle, body armor, a sword, and a shield. But David is so skinny, the armor just falls right off him. And thankfully, David is smart enough to realize that he should just stick with his strengths and do what he had trained to do, use the weapon that he was accustomed to using. And so he, he got out his little shepherd's sling. It's a common tool for a shepherd's Worldwide, even to this day, when we were in Bolivia back in November up in the Andes Mountains, the Quechua Indian women there who tend the sheep and the, and the goat, they all wear this little sash around their waist, and if they can see some goat that's wandering away from the herd, they can whip that thing off, load it with a stone, and bonk that, that uh, goat on the noggin from 50 feet away. 
And so the scene is set. A slender, beardless boy, a shepherd with a shepherd's sling who stoops in a creek and picks up five smooth stones. And facing him is Goliath. He's so big, he's a one-man freak show. He's wearing 125 pounds of armor. That's probably more than what David weighed. Muscles rippling. Now, some people get stuck on the question of, well, how tall was Goliath really? Uh, The traditional Hebrew text measurement that's used here says that Goliath was six cubits and a span. The traditional length of a cubit was from the tip of your finger to your elbow, and it was kind of standardized at about 18 inches, and a span was the width between your thumb and your pinky finger, and that was standardized at about nine inches. So this, the traditional view was that Samson, I mean, Goliath was like nine feet, nine inches tall. Other copies of the Old Testament, however, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, which date from the second century B.C., the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, And uh, first century writers like Josephus, the Jewish historian, say it was four cubits instead of six cubits, which would make Goliath about seven feet tall. So whether it's four cubits or six cubits, it's still a lot of cubits, and Giant is a big guy. And he's twirling a 25-pound spear like a cheerleader twirls a baton. So David walks out in front of this forest of spears. It's kind of a toothpick versus a tornado. And Goliath can't believe his eyes. Is this all you've got? I mean, in verse 43, he scoffs at the kid. He calls him basically stick boy. He says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? What odds would you give for David? Not good. But here's the key verse and why David is a good role model for us in thinking about courage and conflict. Verse 48. As Goliath moved closer to attack... David quickly ran to meet him. Suddenly, David is no longer kneeling at the brook collecting stones. He's running. Well, really, it's the only smart thing to do. Everyone expected to run, but he's running the wrong way. He's running toward Goliath. Everybody expected him to be running away from Goliath. That would have been the smart thing to do, not towards him. Their eyes were popping out of their heads. Nobody ran toward Goliath. You might as well be running off a cliff or running straight into a brick wall. But because of David's confidence in God, his courage led him into the battle, toward the conflict. And there was one stone, zing to the forehead, and that was it. Game over. It hit Goliath's skull with crushing force. Now here's the one thing I want us to learn from this story about David. We need to discover the courage to run toward our conflicts. Wouldn't it be great if we lived in a world without conflict? No more arguments, no more people on the warpath at work, no more angry debates about who said what to whom and why. No more squabbles about bedtime or homework or hurt feelings or whose fault it is. Just peace and quiet. But life is not like that. Every day brings conflict, sometimes painful conflict. We we fight with our family, our friends, our children, our spouse, our co-workers, our competitors. We swear at other drivers. Our bosses yell at us because they're mad about what somebody else did. And so we take it out on the first person we run into. Conflict is unavoidable in life, but it's also necessary. 
You cannot escape it, and you really shouldn't want to. Because conflict is, is defined as the opposition of wills or principles or forces. It is actually part of our biology, our, our psychology, the fabric of our daily lives. We would lose the opposing forces that actually hold buildings and bridges together if there was no such thing as, as conflict. All the laws of thermodynamics would, would disappear. All the laws of motion and friction Conflict is what creates the music that we listen to, the cars that we drive. It permits birds and airplanes to fly. If we did away with all conflict, our our cells would stop regenerating. Surfers would have no waves to ride on. Sailors would have no wind. We wouldn't even be able to walk because walking requires oppositional forces to work interacting with each other. You wouldn't be able to to eat or drink or, or suck on a straw. Conflict is a function of nature. It's not necessarily a result of the the fall of Adam and Eve. Conflict simply is. That doesn't mean we have to like it or enjoy it or cause it or seek it, but we'd better learn how to live with it. The main problem with courage and conflict is that we don't do it very well. And so there's a strong tendency to avoid conflict. When was the last time you really ran toward a challenge, especially when that challenge was another person? Most normal people don't like conflict. It's uncomfortable. It's stressful. And so we tend to retreat, kind of duck behind your desk or uh, turn on a video game or pretend everything is okay. You avoid people in the hallway, crawl into a bottle. We give in. We we look the other way. We ignore it as best we can. we, We crack a joke about it. We look for anything that can be a distraction so we don't have to face situations head on. But your Goliath is still there, booming its insults. Here's the thing that I've had to learn in my life. Conflict isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, if handled right, healthy conflict is the best way to move a relationship or organization forward. Conflict arises because people are different. We perceive situations and and things differently, and those differences allow for different opinions and, and choices that cause the conflict. And so conflict is inevitable between people who even care about each other. It can be healthy because it can open the doors to, to deeper understanding and better communication. If, if creatively handled and managed for good, God will use healthy conflict as part of your growth process. Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Iron against iron, that creates sparks. That's conflict. But when done right, it sharpens and makes us better people. That's why resolving conflict is a key area for staying in love. Staying married, if couples don't learn how to work through their conflicts in a healthy way, trouble will always follow. Conflict simply is. You don't have to like it or cause it or seek it. I'm not encouraging you to become a rageaholic, you know, who who gets into a fistfight with everyone you meet. But you and I need to understand conflict, and we need to move towards it in a courageous way. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, you know, brothers, And sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi. 
as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you this gospel message in the face of strong opposition. Opposition, conflict, it has always been part of the Christian experience. But Christian people in particular have a hard time facing conflict in a healthy way. Well, why is that? Well, it's because Christians are supposed to be nice. We're supposed to be nice. We're supposed to be understanding and patient and kind and love everybody and all those virtues that seem to go against the idea of getting into conflict with with anybody. We're supposed to be nice. But the feelings are still there. The tension, the anxiety, the misunderstanding, the, the hurt that can even turn into bitterness. It's all there, but we're supposed to be nice. And so you put on the smiley face, and that means Christians pretend. Try to forget about it. Sweep it under the rug. Somehow we've been taught that burying conflict is the best thing to do. Ignore what's really going on. But folks, whether it's in a church or a family or a business relationship, burying all that stuff never works long term. It just builds the resentment and the anger and the anxiety that just kind of drains your energy and enthusiasm, colors your perception of life. Eventually, those feelings get resurrected and usually not in a positive way. Usually, there's an explosion and the fallout is huge. In reality, the pressure to be nice comes more from a place of fear than a place of obedience to Christ. Proverbs 29.25 says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. It is the fear of someone else that tends to shut down healthy conflict. The one way I wish I could be more like David is in honestly and courageously facing the many destructive people that we see in our world around us. In facing people who are rude, who are vulgar, who are incompetent, who are obstructive, who are, who are destructive. Too often, we as Christians, we give people a pass. Why? Because we think confrontation, it's not the Christian thing to do. It's not the Christian thing to do to, to make a scene, to, to hurt someone's feelings. I mean, telling someone to shape up or ship out, how do you do that in the church? How do you do that as a Christian, Edwin Friedman calls this dilemma one of the most destructive elements that Christians face. He calls it a failure of nerve, something Jesus never had. I can tell you so many sad stories of, of young pastors who are just getting murdered by their congregations for this very reason. We were down at a conference in Florida uh, last week or two weeks ago, and you just hear story after story of these dysfunctional church bodies, churches that literally are imploding because someone, usually a longtime church member, is a destructive force in the church. And the other Christians let it happen, afraid to confront. And it happens outside the church. People held hostage by someone who's you know, given to outbursts of anger or rage or sarcasm. And people get hamstrung by their own sense of inadequacy. And so someone can act kind of like an emotional terrorist and throw hand grenades in every meeting and and no one stops them. It's a person who's used to throwing his or her weight around and getting what they want. They demand it. They play the power game with their family, with their church, with their office, with their team, with their community group. And you see it, but we, we don't just have bullies on the playground. 
There are a lot of emotional bullies in this world. Toxic people who are allowed to literally kill groups and, and poison ideas and derail programs. The way our culture is going, there are really more and more people with, with borderline personality disorders. Kids coaches who are, who are out of control. Mama bears who, who go on the attack if they think their little cub is being threatened, but reacting in a way that's totally out of proportion to what's really going on. And when they're not confronted by those in charge, when they're not kind of held accountable by those in leadership, the rest of the people lose confidence And then they pull back. They're seen as ineffective or weak and more people withdraw. Groups polarize. There's a lack of trust. And then enthusiasm goes right down the drain. People revert to subversion and sabotage and gossip. And and leaders and groups are often held hostage by one person with a very loud voice. Victimized because people are afraid to confront a problem person. It leads to gridlock in families and companies and churches and community groups and schools. But folks, this is how churches die. No one is willing to run toward the battle. In the world we live in, we all need to be graduate students in healthy conflict. Especially when it comes to people who are these kinds of kind of destructive antagonists. And that's the word that's often used in in the literature to describe it. An antagonist is not to be confused with someone with with whom you just have a simple disagreement or or an area of, of criticism. These are people who are really out to destroy, who go out of their way to attack, and they will burn the house down in order to get their way. They cannot be reasoned with. They do not know how to compromise or discuss things honestly because their own internal anxiety just kind of forces them to try and dominate others around them. And they do not respond. They do not respond to being nice. It's like a shark sensing blood in the water. It just encourages them. They require a firm response. M. Scott Peck writes about this in his book, People of the Lie. And he says this, I have learned nothing in 20 years that would suggest that antagonists can be rapidly influenced by anything except raw power. They do not respond, at least in the short run, to either gentle kindness or any form of spiritual persuasion with which I am familiar. So being nice kind of keeping the peace at any price, well, you reach a point where the price is too high. No one should say, you know, I'll wait until, you know, it affects me personally and just be a a bystander. That's like saying, you know, I won't get involved because it's your end of the canoe that's sinking. Somebody has to grow a backbone. Somebody has to be willing to step into the danger zone and confront bad behavior before it does irreparable damage. Stephen Hawke, who's the creator of the Stevens Ministry pastoral care system that's used in many churches around the country, he writes, What an absurd tragedy if we allow the flock to be devoured because everyone thought it was impolite to cry wolf. Somebody's got to cry wolf. Now here's the one way that we should not be like David in approaching conflict. Not everything is a life and death battle. Not every conflict is 100% good versus 100% evil. We need to know what kind of conflict we are in so that we can right-size our response, right-size our actions, 
And that may actually take greater courage than just getting into a fight with somebody else. And actually, that's going to be the topic for next Sunday, how we right-size our response in Courage and Conflict Part 2. But folks, there are times when you must summon up God's courage within you and run towards the battle no matter how uncomfortable it might feel. When you need to be the one who stands up for yourself or stands up for someone else who's being emotionally bullied. Stand up to protect a ministry or protect your church or your family or just even your own sense of well-being. There are times when the most loving thing that you can do is to enter into that conflict and run toward that giant with a God-infused confidence. Let's pray together. Lord David, in some ways, is so different from us because he had such great confidence. He didn't seem to have any fear at all in facing Goliath. And Lord, when we look out on the landscape this week, is there a Goliath in our horizon? Is there some problem that just seems too big? Is there some person who has been taunting us and the idea of facing that person again is just so intimidating? Or maybe we have been the Goliath to somebody else. Maybe it's our anger issues that are the real problem, that we're the one who has to dominate and control and manipulate, Lord. May your spirit speak to us at whatever level we need it, Lord. May we have that same sense of your presence with us that David had each and every day, Lord. And may we, as we look out upon our struggles and our trials, may we have the courage to step toward the danger zone, knowing that you're right by our side. Give us the right words and the courage, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.